This is the Hidden Wire Podcast, episode 598 with Zach Schombrun. The advice that I that I like to, to give is is that there are, there are no rules in life. G'day ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Hidden Wire Podcast. Lee Martinuzzi here with you today. As always, guys, thank you for tuning in to the Hidden Wire Podcast. I hope you're enjoying it. I'd love to connect with you. I'd love to hear from you guys to see what you're taking away, see what you're enjoying, uh, whether it's the interviews, my solo shows, the book reviews, etc. Connect with me at thehiddenwire.com and uh, let's have a little bit of a chat there. Guys, today I've got an exciting interview to bring you. It is with Zach Schombrun. So Zach is a contributing writer for the New York Times uh, and he has been since 2011, uh, covering primarily sports and business. Um, He has many articles that have appeared on the front page, and he's also the author of a new book that he's just released, The Performance Cortex, How Neuroscience is Redefining Athletic Genius. So he came across a couple of neuroscientists that were studying um, baseball uh, and the players on the fields there, and, and he was just curious as to why neuroscience was being involved there and that led him on a uh, journey to writing this book, a three to four year journey to writing this book. A lot of great insights in this conversation, guys. I absolutely loved it. It goes for about an hour, um, so I'm sure you'll get a lot from it as well. So guys, make sure you check out the show notes. Um, use the link there if you're interested in picking up a copy of the book. That'd be great. Other than that, guys, let me know what you think. Um, connect with Zach, let him know what you thought as well, and uh, let's take the conversation further. Enjoy. G'day, Zach. Welcome to the Hidden Wire podcast. How are you today? I'm doing great, Lee. Great to speak with you. It is fantastic to have you. You're over there in New York. I am, yes. Uh, finally, it uh, looks like it's springtime here in New York. It took a while, but uh, we're finally getting some nice weather. Love spring. Yeah, love it. Uh, how is the uh, springtime over there? Have you been a New Yorker for, for your life? or? Well, you know, I grew up in Massachusetts, Um you know, which is a, a little bit a little bit further north, obviously, than New York. But I've been in New York for about uh, almost a decade now, so it has become my adopted home, and I love it. I love New York City, and all that uh, is going on here. And being a a, a sports reporter uh, for the New York Times and and other outlets, um, obviously, there's a lot of activity in terms of the sports scene here in New York as well. So, um, yeah, I, I, I uh, I've enjoyed my time for sure. Yeah, awesome. So tell us, um, I've actually, and this might upset some of my, my fans out there that listen to the show, because uh, a lot of them do come from the US. I've never been to New York, nor the US, so uh, keen to get there. What are the three things you love about New York? Oh, man. Um you know, well, obviously, as I mentioned before, the um, the sports scene is great. In fact, I'm going to a um, a Mets fan, a Mets game, a New York Mets game as a, as a fan tomorrow, which is a rare treat for me. Usually, I, I cover uh, sporting events for the newspaper, and so I'm there in a you know professional capacity. But it'll be nice to actually go to a game, have a few beers, some hot dogs, and and uh, really you know enjoy. enjoy it as a fan. So <laughs> I'm actually looking forward to that. Yeah, awesome. And. Um, yeah, we we uh, we're fortunate to live near several great museums, the uh, Met and the Guggenheim. So Lee, when you when you come here for the first time, you have to make sure to to go to the museums uh, and uh, just the the energy and and the um, the idea that there's always something interesting going on in New York City, whether it's a you know parade or a um, or an event or uh, you know just some other social gathering. It's um, it's uh, it's a great place to be. Good. 
good vibe. Yeah, it sounds like it too. It's got. It sort of seems like it'd have that feeling anyway. So, can't yeah. wait to get there. It'll be on the cards in hopefully the next few years. Um, good, good. So cool, mate. And um, so, tell us a little bit about what you're doing and how you got involved in. So, you you write for the New York Times and been doing that for some. I time? do. Yeah, so I've been I've been a journalist uh, through, since college. Um, and I went to Syracuse University and uh, in Syracuse, New York, and um, got involved with with sports journalism there, and and have have carried that through uh, through through the the New York Times. I cover uh, mostly uh, New York sports and and uh, and other feature stories uh, here in New York. We we I, I tend to look for things that are kind of outside the box and and are as I like to think about it kind of on the margins of sports. And so, you know, that's, that's kind of the, the stories that I've always been interested in reading, um, are not the X's and O's and the, you know, the, the gossip of, of, of sports, but really kind of the more interesting characters or, or the, um, storylines and, and stuff like that. And so, um, you know, in that in that pursuit, I, I came across this story about uh, two neuroscientists that were starting to do work with uh, Major League Baseball teams here in the United States, and it really caught my eye as being something that was uh, unique and, and different. And so I, I pursued that um, initially as a as a magazine length story, and then um, I, at the time I didn't think it would lead to anything much, um, but here I am. It led to a it led to a book. So um, it's been a wild uh, three or four years that I've been working on this. Three or four years, wow, good work, um, and congratulations on the launch too. So the book is titled "The Performance Cortex: How Neuroscience Is." redefining athletic genius so um yeah an exciting read and uh, i will stick the link in the show notes too guys for you listening out there and, and we'll um give it another mention at the end of the show today as well but um i was just about to ask you know what are some of the most insightful uh sort of stories that you've come across in the past and obviously this is one uh, quite recent but what was one perhaps that stands out prior to this that was really um quite eye-opening for you boy uh it's a good question i i've um uh, you know, I've done, I've done, I really have, you know, been fortunate that I've had, I've had great editors at the, at the paper and those who I've, who I've worked with that, you know, have, um, helped me and enabled me to look for interesting stories and, and, and do more beyond, you know, just covering a game and, and leaving it at that, but actually finding and, and uncovering, um, stories that, you know, might have a more human interest element or, or just a, you know, kind of a more curiosity to them than, um, than traditional sports writing. And so I, I do, I think, you know, that's one of the advantages that I have in, in working for a place like the New York times, which doesn't have a typical sports readership, um, of its sports section but as a kind of a more worldly type of reader and I think a reader that um, that uh, expects that that type of reporting and I think you know I, I mean I could I could go back and, and try and rack my brain for you know what's the most interesting one or one that caught my eye but I did recently I, I was ha- happy about a story that I that I published in um, February I believe it was about a a uh, young high school basketball player in Ohio who happens to be the tallest basketball player in the country in the United States at the time, and he's only 17 years old, and he stands seven feet seven inches tall, which is taller than any NBA player today. And so um, I got a chance to go out to Ohio and meet him, Robert Bobrovsky, and um, just a nice a nice guy. And and um, but you know he's he's got a, a fascinating story and a really um, a really difficult lifestyle for him being that size 
and having those expectations on his shoulders, if you're seven foot seven, you're expected to play in the NBA, right? And, uh, you know, if you're not, there aren't too many seven foot seven guys walking around. Um, and so if you're, if you're not playing basketball to a high level at that height, um, it's, uh, you know, it's a, it's a lot of expectation there. And so trying to, see how he's dealing with that and um you know and and the his his own injuries uh issues as well he's been struggling with weight gain um as well he only weighs about 210 pounds which if you can imagine for seven foot seven is um mm. is quite a skinny skinny frame so his you know struggles with weight gain and and um and just his size being so much taller than all of his friends and, and everybody in, in school with him. It, it was a, it was an interesting story. I really enjoyed that. So, um, you know, the lens around from his perspective and see what he's actually going through with all that. I did. I tried to do that. That's absolutely right. So, um, I had, I had fun with that one. Thanks. Sounds, sounds like a really exciting uh, job that you've got there, mate. What, um, so for advice, I guess, and this is before we go into your book, I'm really eager to do that, but what advice would you, you know, give someone looking to, to get into journalism? And, you know, is it, is it, is it an easy path to, to get into something like you or has it been a, a long, you know, sort of term uh, process? Yeah, well, no, it's it's definitely not easy, and and um, you know I have a long way to go in terms of my own career and feeling where you know where I want to be and the type of reporter that that I hope to be one day. But I think you know it, it's just it, it to me it's it's been about my own curiosity and desire to tell good stories, and you know um, you know that that has kind of prevailed. I think there's a lot of a lot of uh, young people today, because I, I do speak to some classes in college and uh, colleges and, and stuff around around in the area, and um, try and talk to um, young young uh, journalism students and so on. And there's a, a a big you know push toward because of the the social media pressures and you know how prevalent Twitter is today and how kids will you know see um, uh, people on Twitter breaking news all the time and the instantaneousness of of journalism and news today, I think there's a real um, uh, pressure on on these uh, younger people who think that they that that's what journalism is. It's about you know getting scoops every second and and publishing stories that disappear in five seconds when the next tweet comes. And I, you know I think while while that's certainly you know the case for some people, my my approach has always been about telling good stories, finding interesting. Um, finding interesting stories and narratives that, um, you know, that, that show us a little bit more about life or culture or society than, than we knew before we picked up the paper and read it about it. And so, you know, I've never been, I've never felt too persuaded by the idea that I have to be breaking news every five seconds. Um, and, uh, and I, and rather, I'd rather spend more time digging into something, uh, and, and developing a more, you know, depth, developing more depth and, and, um, and, uh, and, you know, structure into a longer, longer story, um, than, than anything like that. So, you know, um, yeah, journalism definitely changed even in the time since I've, I've been involved here and, and, you know, some ways for the better and, and probably more ways, not for the, not for the better. And I think that's, um, you know, keeping that eye on, on storytelling and, and putting together a good narrative, uh, about, uh, about people and, and places and things is really, should be valued and important today. Absolutely. And having read your writing, I mean, I love the way you, you capture my imagination. You really paint the picture 
quite vividly, uh, I feel so. Um, Thank you. It's, it's fantastic writing. Uh, I've got a couple of questions off the, the back of that. Um, and the first one that just came to mind is, you know, obviously you're a fan of sports as well, so you, you're pursuing a couple of passions there, you know, the interest to, to you know, tell a good story, but also to to follow the sporting world as well, um, which it seems quite clearly that you're a fan of. Has that always been the case? You've always been a sports person? Yeah, I have. Um, you know, and and I grew up, you know, playing sports in in Massachusetts, and and I was never a great athlete, although I I wanted to be, <laughs> and uh, and I, you know, I was totally the kid that was emulating, you know, Michael Jordan with the fadeaway jumper in the in the backyard at the, you know, in the in my on my hoop in the in the in the drive, even though you know I only grew to be about five foot seven, and, and so I didn't get the genetic gifts uh, they they didn't come to me. Um, it, as much as I would have liked, but, um, yeah, I grew up, I grew up loving sports and I, and I think, um, you know, for sports, I, I, I've stayed with sports writing, um, for, for the most part for, for a different reason though, Lee, I don't, I, as, as much as I am still a fan of, of, of sports and I, and I do, I do watch, um, uh, you know, I have evolved and grown a little bit and I'm not too, I'm not living and dying with every pitch the way I, I used to be. And, but I still like sports writing because, um, the, there's a, there's sort of a liberation to it than I, to, to sports writing that I think is not offered to, if I was, let's say covering the white house or covering, you know, wall street or, um, you know, or other, or other aspects of reporting. I think, you know, sports writing, uh, introduces you to, uh, very interesting and diverse and captivating characters all across the spectrum. Um, and, uh, you can, you know, one day profile somebody who's seven foot seven, the next day do a story about a, you know, a, a football player who's come from a hard background and, and, uh, you know, is trying to overcome injuries. You can, there's always stories about redemption and overcoming, um, whether it's backgrounds, or injuries and so on. And I think, you know, uh, it, uh, sports writing to me, um, is, is always just, it presents itself with a lot of great opportunities, um, to be creative and actually be a great writer. Um, and, uh, and, and do interesting writing because you're liberated because you're not covering, you know, life or death situations necessarily. Um, there's, there's a little bit less of, uh, of, of an impetus to be, you know, the heart, the bring be uh, delivering hard news, but rather you can incorporate more of a human interest uh, approach. And so that's, that's always interested me. I've tried to live by the, um, Frank DeFord, the famous sports illustrated writer, his, uh, his famous saying about when I go to a dinner party and I say that I'm a sports writer, people tend to hear the first part of the word, uh, and don't pay attention to the second. And so I've tried to always keep in mind that, uh, I'm a writer first and, and a sports writer second. Yeah. Good, good point. What would fascinate me most is is really delving into you know the human condition as well and and uh, getting that that sort of perspective um, about you know our human potential as well, which I, I'm assuming you had a lot of. Um, just a question on on sports writing, and it perhaps links to another question as well. But with AI now advancing, there's a lot of AI technology that are now covering um, you know the, the the stats, I guess, behind sports events, etc. Um, what is your sort of take on AI and how that's going to influence, you know, writing moving forward? Yeah, it's a good question. I, I um, you know, I haven't been, uh, I haven't, you know, uh, had had to confront that too much, but uh, you know, I understand um, where it's coming, and I think that uh, you're right. I think I think uh, journalism is going to be just one of the 
many sectors that is going to be influenced by um, the, uh, the the growth and development of of AI, and I think it just puts more pressure on and uh, and um, motivates me to and, and hopefully other reporters to um, to be more creative and um, and uh, be more uh, you know productive in terms of finding those types of stories and narratives and, and the storytelling that, you know, an artificial uh, computer or whatever would not be able to find. And, and so, you know, I think there's, um, you know, when I, when I say that, I, you know, when I was talking earlier about writing, I think, you know, the, the thing that also um, is, goes hand in hand with that is reporting. And so, you know, there, there's not going to be an artificial intelligence uh, piece of equipment that's going to be in a locker room um, talking to people, at least for the foreseeable future. And so I think that's where you, uh, where you define yourself and, uh, and differentiate yourself from, from something else is actually getting out there and, uh, and talking to people and interviewing and picking up the phone. I mean, that's, that's really the, the best piece of advice that I would give to somebody is, you know, don't never be afraid of picking up the phone and making calls. And I think yeah. that's, uh, and just talking to people. And so, um, yeah, it, I, I'm not afraid of that. And therefore I'm not, or somebody else, or something else, uh, replacing me in that regard. Haven't had a one-on-one uh, -on -one fight with a, a robot yet. Okay, that's good news. <laughs> <laughs> not yet, not yet. <laughs> and I think it's a really important point, but and you, you, you know, yes, they can look at stats and figures and search Google, but they can't really have that that creative approach to writing or that human approach to writing as well. So by you know, you getting out there and obviously connecting with the individual on that human level, you know, with empathy and really compassion, understanding their story and then being able to use that creatively uh, from a human perspective and write a story. Um, that's something certainly that um, AI, at least yet and perhaps never, um, will be able to, to match because, you know, that that's human component and you're putting it right into the writing as well. And then the reader actually will pick up on that. Yeah. So, um yeah, no, it's just interesting and fascinating for me. I've just been reading a bit about it, so that's what came to mind. So let's jump into your book, The Performance Cortex. Um, so you, you came across a story about a couple of neuroscientists that were looking into um, some research or studying uh, behavior of a right. baseball team, was it? That's right, right. Yeah, they were... Um they were introducing a piece of neuroimaging equipment called EEG to um, to professional baseball teams, and so yeah, and so uh, you know they had been doing some research into hitting at uh, at Columbia University, and um, they were finding that expert hitters, not surprisingly, the brains of of expert hitters were activating or responding in different ways than novices at a, at a pitch, you know, when they, when they would, when they would receive a fast moving pitch. And so, um, they thought that that kind of information, uh, would be useful to teams and, and, uh, they were right, <laughs> you know? And so they, they, when I got first, uh, introduced to them and the company is called, uh, DeServo, which is, which is from the French, uh, DeServo of the brain. Um, they were just starting to uh, bring uh, EEG and into you know working with major major league teams and in, in using that EEG to um, basically assess or quantify when a hitter was deciding whether or not to swing or not swing at a pitch. And so teams 
at that point, we're trying to figure out, okay, how to, how can we incorporate this information? How can we use this uh, new form of analytics? Um, and in, in a lot of ways, teams are still trying to uh, trying to understand or figure out the ways to use that analytics um, now, three or four years later. Um, but when I first when they they first caught my eye because you know I had heard a little bit about um, brain gaming and like the um, cognitive training stuff, kind of like the Lumosity uh, approach to. Um, brain gaming and, and some uh, sports teams had been dabbling with with some approaches in in terms of using that for sports. So I'd heard a little bit about that making its way into sports. Um, and obviously, sports psychology and mindfulness was um, has been around for for years now. But this actually was a neuroscience uh, effort that was not really making promises from a performance standpoint saying that we're going to make your players better, but rather that we can, we have access to information that has never been accessed before. We can effectively peer into a player's a professional hitter's brain as it is, you know, as it is making a decision about whether to swing or not swing at a pitch. And we can give you that information and you can decide what you want to do with it. And so as a kind of a, maybe a new Moneyball Moneyball 2.0, this next phase of data revolution, um, I thought it was really unique. And so that's where, that's where I got started on this, on this thread. Yeah, wow, okay, interesting. Um, just to, to track back a little bit, what's the brain gaming? Can you give me a bit of insight into what that is? Yeah, so, you know, f- several years ago, there's a company called Lumosity, um, that uh, was uh, was very popular in producing. Basically, what they are are video games um, that are tailored for um, for adults to you know to play on their laptops or uh, you know on their f- mobile phones. And they, they these these games were intended to improve your attention or improve your memory, improve your spatial awareness. And, you know, they were very simplistic games, kind of like Tetris or kind of like, you know, Pong and things like that. Um, and, uh, they were, they were obviously enjoyable and, and entertaining to play. They've come under a lot of scrutiny in recent years because there's been really very little evidence to back up the, um, the claims that these companies were making that they could actually do anything for your brain to, you know, improve your mem- cognitive uh, functioning. And so they, uh, Lumosity was actually fined about $50 million um, uh, not too long ago for misleading and deceptive uh, marketing approaches. But uh, it, that, that idea of being able to train your brain via a simulation or a video game type of uh, format has been around for a few years and it continues to, to stay around. And so, um, sports teams, uh, likewise were interested in this idea that, Oh, is there, is there a video game approach that could help my players, um, perform better on the field, even though they're playing it in the locker room or something like that. Yeah. Right. And I know a lot of, um, military use that now and it's, it's quite advanced, um, and obviously quite beneficial because it's, it's quite costly to be able to uh, to go out there on the battlefield and and not have right. that training, whereas simulations can really help um, up, upgrade that skill before they actually get there uh, in a potentially dangerous situation. And, and same with the sporting arena, I'm assuming as well. And I assume now the neuroscience and that gaming sort of simulations um, part of it is now combining, coming together. Did you find that? Well, yeah, that's that's the thing is is um, 
the the problem with the lumosity type of of uh, approach was that they were they were taking games like I mentioned, like let's say Tetris, which I think is a game that most uh, most of us are familiar with. It, stop me if you're not familiar with Tetris, yeah, Lee. But okay. <laughs> So, and they were claiming that a game like Tetris could help you. Uh, I'm just kind of spitballing here and uh, I'm not sure if this is exactly what they were claiming, but let's just hypothesize that they would make claims that a game like Tetris could help with your ability to problem solve or your spatial awareness, maybe in structuring or organi- organizing how things uh, should be in your in your life. And, and so there, the problem is that there's really no evidence that that sort of transfer from one type of game that really has no uh that has no um correlation to anything in real life or in reality uh there's there's no evidence that that can actually help you um perform better in the function that it that it was claiming to help you so a simulation like you mentioned in the military where they are um where they might be simulating a combat scenario you know, with a with video or something, we're putting the putting the um, the service the troops in us in the scenarios that they could expect yep. to face. That does a much better job at preparing your brain uh, and for and for training. I mean, flight simulators is a common one where you know uh, pilots have been training on flight flight simulators for for decades. The reason it's effective is because you are simulating what it's like to be in a cockpit of a plane. Uh, and so there is, you can make that, the brain can make that transfer from the simulation to the real world. Um, anything that is, that is not, uh, directly related to what you should be facing in reality. Uh, it's very, very hard. And and in fact, there really is, is, is much less evidence that it's actually doing anything for you. Um, rather than, even though it might intuitively make sense, um, the brain is, the brain is a pretty smart piece of equipment. It's a smart organ. It can pick up on things that uh, you're not you're not realizing, and so it's not going to be fooled by um, playing Tetris and thinking that it's going to help me, you know, better organize my life. Yeah, look, I, I suppose. I mean, I could just imagine that playing a game like Tetris might help some sort of reaction skill. Um, so it allows you to you know be more reactive and, and quicker off the mark potentially. Uh, I'm not too sure. Um, whereas a simulation where you're actually put into that same environment that you could be expect to walk into, uh, your, bro- your brain learns that, yeah? So when it comes to that situation again, it can quickly pick up and the computer then sort of runs on automation and, and makes the, the correct movements from there. That's, that's exactly right. I, you know, uh, the brain, the brain is, is so often, so much uh, is, is working on uh, prediction, and making accurate predictions as we as we move about the world, and and certainly for athletes, this is what uh, athletes rely on. Um, uh, perhaps most of all is their brain's ability to predict what's um, what's coming. How, how do how does a how does a tennis player Roger Federer respond to a 150 mile an hour serve? I mean, he has to be able to predict um, what's coming and where it's going to be. And that enables him to react in the way that uh, in the way that he does. And so, the way that he's able to make those predictions is by uh, studying and picking up on um, very subtle, in fact, probably imperceptible to most of us, 
uh, cues or clues that his opponent is giving away that that Roger, through his years of training, um, has honed himself in order to be able to pick up on. And so uh, a simulation that can put Roger or a, a military uh, troop, you know, in that scenario and enabling him or her to pick up on those cues and simulate what cues they might need to pick up on is, is much more advantageous for the brain as, as a practice or training, uh, uh, scenario. Absolutely. So, I mean, we've, there's a lot of work around, you know, innate ability and a lot of research suggests that it's, it's no such thing rather that, um, you know, a lot of the famous sports people have just been, uh, put into certain situations, repetition from a young age, yeah. etc. Um, you know, the work of Anders Ericsson's the one that stands out to me. Um, what, I mean, is your thoughts or findings in, in that regard about, you know, innate ability of people that just have that athletic gene in their body? <laughs> well, yeah, it, there, there's, I, I didn't come across any evidence that anybody is born with a brain to play tennis. Um, and I don't think any evidence exists out there for that. And, and so, um, but there is plenty of evidence that the brain is, uh, capable of, of making fairly dramatic transformations, um, over the course of your, of your life, depending on, how much time and energy you put into practicing or developing one craft. And so certainly those changes and alterations occur much more frequently uh, or, or much more readily when we are younger in childhood and adolescence. Our brain is much more uh, plastic and uh, fertile for uh, augmentation and development. So why it's easier to learn a new language when you're a child rather than trying to pick it up at a later age. But it doesn't mean it's impossible to learn a new language at a later age. And in fact, adults um, have shown a, a, a strong degree of what's called neuroplasticity, this idea that um, neural connections and, and, and even brain regions can morph or change depending on how much they're used uh, or incorporated into the daily routine. And so, you know, athletes, of course, are spending hours and hours and hours on uh, their specific training and their, um, and their, their craft. And, and so the reason I think it's what is, you know, what was my biggest takeaway or one of my biggest takeaways from working on this book is kind of reinforcing this idea that what is the 10,000 hours rule really mean? It doesn't take 10,000 hours to bolster your muscles, you know? <laughs> no. Um, it, what it means is that it takes, it takes that long because it requires, it is, it, it involves your brain having to develop and, and change and, uh, and, uh, uh, morph into, um, that, uh, brain that you need it to be in order to excel at your, uh, at your sport and, or, or, or any part of your craft, whatever you're, whatever you're doing. Certainly the 10,000 hours rule as Anders Ericsson uh, has studied, it doesn't just apply to athletes, but it applies to violinists and chess grandmasters and so on. And so, you know, I think the, you know, the thing we have to ask ourselves is why should it take that long? Why is it, why is it, why does it take 10,000 hours? Why can't it be a hundred hours or, or just, or a thousand, why does it take so long? And the reason is that it has to do because of, you know, the brain, the brain is a uh, complicated piece of, of equipment and it, and it takes a long time in order for it to be developed in the way that you need it to be. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I find it interesting, you know, you, you sort of say that, you know, kids learn a, a language quick, um, because their brain is so uh, plastic, I think they can really do that. And I've actually experienced that with my ch children. Uh, we just lived in Japan for two years, and 
they picked up the language, like my eldest daughter was speaking Japanese after two years. Um, but they also forget it just as quick as well. And I think they forget it quicker than adults would forget. Um, I don't know. Oh, that's you interesting. Agree yeah. With that or not, but, um, and perhaps it's <laughs> interesting. because they, you know, they're, they're so interested in everything and they can learn everything else so easy. So what they have learnt, if they're not using it, it sort of subsides quicker as well. Um, but whether that stays with them long term, not too sure. I'm interested in um, the neuroscience uh, behind it all and, and how this is actually going to benefit us fast tracking that 10,000 hours rule is that I mean because we can look back to you know um, 100 years ago and the, the performance rate then you know the, the fastest time on 100 meter sprint was I think 11 seconds uh, 14 year olds are doing it in under 10 seconds these days um, so obviously right. whatever we're doing we're learning and we're improving uh, consistently um, what was perhaps the most significant findings that you found through your research with you know the neuroscience and how that's going going to affect um you know ability to to perform not only athletes but all of us in in our personal lives yeah it's a good question you know i mean i think certainly sports science has has evolved particularly in recent years has gotten much um much better and uh and has uh has has helped athletes in a lot of ways that that they didn't before in terms of nutrition um workouts weightlifting um and, uh, you know, and, and mental training and, uh, flexibility, things like that. Um, and so for all those factors combined, I think the next frontier is applying neuroscience and, uh, the, the understanding of neuroscience to what we know about, uh, great athletes. And, and it will be interesting to see, um, where, where it goes from there and, and, and so on. But I think as far as what kind of is a takeaway, um, for me or for, for other readers, uh, you know, I think it, it, um, it just, it, it's, you know, there, there are a lot of misconceptions out there about how to practice and how to train, um, and, uh, and the, and the role that the brain is going to play or should play in your, in your, in your lives. And I think probably the biggest misconception, which is still being, it's still widely perpetuated and, and it's still, um, it's still somewhat controversial because I think there are a few different, um, few different, uh, views about this, but the idea that, um, that the kind of the basic building block of skill is through habitual practice of the same technique and the same, uh, and, and the same, uh, motions over and over and over again. And kind of this, this build up toward automatization, um, as being establishing habits, in your, in your routines. And, um, where I think that might need to be readdressed and where I think some neuroscientists, including those who I spoke to, a few of those who I spoke to in the book are starting to readdress this is that there needs to be kind of a breakdown or a, uh, a way to distinguish between what's actually skill and what's actually habit. And so it gets a little semantic when, and, and perhaps philosophical if I get into it. Um, but you know, the, basically the takeaway is that if, if you are habitual in something, you're effectively inflexible. 
about it. You're going to do the same thing over and over again. And this might be great in terms of learning to ride a bicycle or basically, you know, your kind of fundamental levels of skill. But when you come across something that is, um, that throws you for a loop or, or you're not expecting, or you haven't faced before, um, you're going to rely and fall back on those habits, even though it's going to be the wrong answer. And so I think what we, we tend to think of these great athletes, oh, they're just, it's all muscle memory. It's all habit. They've just practiced over and over again, the same thing. And they're doing these things based on habit, but that's not really the case. And I think they're, they are, they're skilled and there's a difference between being skilled and being habitual. And so, um, that, uh, that to me is, um, was, uh, was one of the more interesting, uh, you know, explanations that I heard from, from uh, scientists, neuroscientists studying the brain and trying to understand what it means to be skilled versus what it means to to just uh, have habits, and uh, and so uh, I hope I hope that's not too not yeah, too no, confusing. Really cool. but like, you'll have to pick up the book. <laughs> got me uh, got me thinking. So with with and I'm just thinking um, about a simple thing like a task of writing, for example. Um, I was never great at English, and my writing kind of sucks, um, but I kept writing. Um, I don't know why, I've got an interest there, I've got a passion behind it. And I've noticed that my skill has improved, um, you know, through repetition. So I've just wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote without really doing too much there to educate myself or learn um, other than, you know, through reading, etc. And I noticed that my skill has, has certainly improved and it's not just a case that my habit is good. Um, perhaps that's, that is good as well, but yeah, certainly the skill has improved through repetition, through habitual uh, practice. Um, is that always the case or is it is what you're sort of looking at is that neuroscience can help us get that skill quicker without having to go through, you know, thousands of hours of repetition? Yeah, I think I, I think what what it is is that um you know, there, there, you have to go through the hours of repetition in order to build up kind of a baseline uh, or, or a building block of you know, the first building block of skill. But I think where we tend to get confused is that we see a phenomenal athlete like LeBron James and we think that he has just built building, building blocks on top of building blocks all based on habit. And that's not really – the case. He's not practicing the same things over and over and over again in order for him to get to be so great. He's diversifying his training. He's um, he's trying new things. He's, he's trying different approaches. Um, he's uh, and he you know he's he's built upon that initial building block in ways that uh, that are that are different each time. And so I think you know um, if if he was just if he was just uh, built upon, if he was just habitual in his in his approach, then any time that he came across a scenario that he hadn't seen before, or something like if he, you know, the first time he came, he went to a, a came, approached a big game and he wasn't prepared for the stress and the nerves yeah. of uh, of a big game, his skill would crumble, and that. That doesn't. Maybe it happened initially, but it doesn't happen anymore because he has built skill on top of habit. So it's really defined skill, um, and yeah, your brain will compute like when there's similarities with with what you know um, to the environment that you're about to face. So I guess what you're s- suggesting is perhaps that we need to have that repetition combined with many many different scenarios, not just the one scenario. And that takes me back to you know playing Tetris. It's a very one sort of you know 
you're on a computer screen, it's right in front of your face and it's just a couple of blocks that are falling down the screen. Um, it's not really changing anything there. You're not changing environments or situations where you need to use that skill that you've learned in a different manner. Exactly. Yeah, that's exactly right. I think diversity of training and, um, and, uh, you know, and, and the, the different modules or the approaches that you take to your skill development is crucial in order to break, um, the chains of those habits that you might otherwise be developing. That's really interesting. So how could we take away, um, you know, some of your research and I guess I want to encourage the guys to read your book as well, but from actually, you know, everyday people using your research in their lives. And I guess, I mean, I could take away a few things from what we just talked about, but what would you recommend? I mean, how, how could we put this into practice in our own lives? Well, I mean, to, to me, Lee, the big, the big takeaway for me was not from a better training or a better performance aspect of things because, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not a, I'm not a trainer and I'm not, uh, I'm not a performance coach or anything like that. I, what I am is an admirer of sports and an admirer of great performers. And to me, the, the takeaway was a different sense of an appreciation, um, for what we do, uh, as we move about our daily lives, you know, I never thought twice about reaching for my coffee mug at the end of this desk here and lifting it up to my to my lips and taking a drink. It comes something like that comes so naturally to me, but yet my my understanding now of the that process is has been totally changed. And and you know, walking down the street and um, and avoiding obstacles or making sure I don't run into oncoming traffic. This is these are extraordinary. Uh, scenarios that we put our brain through every you know second of the day in terms of uh, processing, prediction, um, reaction, and and so on, and and uh, calculation, and so um, you know the the they come so naturally to us that we tend to take them for granted, and so that that's where I've I've changed my outlook is I'm no longer taking the brain's role in our movement for granted, and I think those who are uh, extraordinary movers like the athletes that we that we pay to watch. Um, it's just another another level, another a really almost. Uh, it's a really uh, you know in, indescribable um, what they're able to do on, on a on a court in terms of what it means for the brain to compute and and calculate um, things that are happening all all around it. And so, um, you know, for me, my my biggest takeaway is never being able to watch a a sporting event the same way again, because, you know, we've, we've long been so focused on the physical attributes of these athletes that we've, uh, completely, uh, overlooked their cognitive and, and mental attributes. And so that's where I think, um, hopefully, uh, this book and, 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 uh, the research of, of others will, will start to change that. That's, uh, yeah, that's really interesting. And I think, um, you know, once you have that insight, I don't know, have you ever read a book by Lisa Feldman Barrett called how emotions are made? I have not. No, I haven't come across that. It gives a lot of good insights into, you know, prediction and how the brain's sort of structured as well. It's a neuroscience sort of book. Um, but, yeah, it's interesting. Once you have that insight, um, and this is why I think, you know, from going off what we just talked about, is, is changing up your environment, changing up how you do things um, is really important um, to, you know, continue to develop the skill and, and, you know, shape that brain so it can respond better in, in different situations. So rather than, 
you know, if you always pick up your coffee mug with your right hand, um, you know, try and start drinking it with your left hand for a bit. Um, <laughs> just a few simple, like really, like that's what you could do, yeah? yeah. Like if you jog in one, I, I try to mix it up. I jog in one routine and you always do the same thing. So do it in reverse and it just changes things up and, um, you know, puts puts that skill into, into different situations, um, therefore strengthening it. You know, I'll throw in I'll throw in some something I learned from one uh, study that that I wrote about in the book. As you mentioned, the you know using one hand uh, too often and not you know neglecting the other. Um, but uh, we we do t- obviously tend to think we all we all have uh, handedness, and most of us are right handed, though some of us are left, and we tend to think that we are completely uh, incapable with our left hand. Like if I had to pick up a pencil and start writing with my left hand right now, I would I probably would I feel like I probably would not be able to make anything legible but uh, actually you know there's a lot we're a lot better with our offhand so to speak than we tend to think that we are and so um, there was a really interesting uh, work done by some of the neuroscientists at uh, Western University in Ontario where they took violinists and they put them in an MRI machine and they asked these violinists to uh, to basically to pluck the strings with their non dominant hand. And when the violinists were asked to do this, they said they they refused. They said, no way. We've been practicing years and years and years with our right hand. We'd never be able to do anything with our left. Um, I, you know, I, I, I can't even fathom uh, attempting this. And yet uh, when they had to do it in, in the machine, they uh, they did it to a, to a degree that was a lot, even much better than than even the novices, even though they didn't think they could do it. They were still able to do it. And I think it speaks to this you know, idea that the brain is, is picking up on a lot more things um, than we think it is, even though we might be behaviorally concentrating on that foot, on that dominant hand, the and the uh, hemisphere of the brain that is responsible for that dominant hand, the alternate hemisphere is soaking in that information too. And when it's required, which isn't often, but on, on occasion when it's required to produce um, what it needs to produce in terms of behavior. It's a lot more capable uh, than we think it is. So, um, yes, I pick up my coffee mug in my right hand, but if you ask me to pick it up with my left or maybe, you know, do something with my left, I might not want to do it, but I think I'd be pretty capable. Well, it slows you down. You notice, like, you just do that automatically, but then if you do it with the other hand, you have to actually sort of – you actually do. You're a bit more aware of, of the action you're doing because it's so unfamiliar. But there is, again, that, that skill, that process that the brain is, is familiar with that can actually help you do that. You know, it's not like it's your first time. Right. Mate, right. I love it. Um, looking really forward to uh, finishing the book and want to encourage the guys to go out there and pick up a copy themselves. So I'll stick the link in the show notes for them as well. I've got some quick round questions, Zach, that I want to go through. I, I take all my guests through these questions. Uh, all right. So yeah, I'll, I'll leave them to you to answer. The first question is, do you have any routines or rituals that you believe contribute to your success? Um, besides morning coffee, um, <laughs> I work from home, um, which, uh, isn't always easy, but, um, you know, I walk my dog, uh, every, every afternoon around noon. And I actually think that helps a lot just getting out and walking and exercising. I think, um, it, uh, helps jog the brain a little bit and, um, and, uh, kind of gets the blood flowing. And I think it's a nice reset, a nice recharge. If I was just kind of plowing ahead and a lot of times I do, you know, spend most of the day in front of my computer and, you know, whether it's writing or checking Twitter obsessively or something like that. Um, you know, it, and it, but it's not, it's not good for it. It's, it's actually, in fact, a, a lot of times I feel I'm more productive, 
um, after having had a walk or while thinking about things while I'm on the walk. Um, and so that's been a ritual that I think has been beneficial to me. Yeah, absolutely. Is that your dog in the background? I can hear like a collar shaking or something. Yeah, sorry about that, Lee. He's been uh, answer. He wants another walk, so um, <laughs> he's, I, I been, thought that he's making some noise back there. Yeah, I thought maybe you were picking up some medals that you've won and just sort of shaking them. In your <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, no, nope, that's uh, cool. What advice would you give to your twenty-year-old self? Man, um, you know, stay open-minded and. Um, uh, yeah, just st- stay open-minded. Don't um, you know? Don't get too uh, frustrated or, or bogged down by by things. But I think um, you know. I've always. I think I've always been fairly open-minded and and um, you know and and flexible and and uh, and so you know. But probably at age twenty, I had my my focus was was kind of razor sharp on on a, on a few different directions. And things have some have worked out, some have not worked out. But ultimately, you know, uh, eleven years later. Uh, I'm happy about where I am. And so, um, I think, uh, maintaining kind of an open mind and, and a healthy curiosity about all things is, uh, is valuable. Yeah. I think, I mean, you, you just touched on the word that comes to, to my mind when I hear open-minded is curiosity. Is there yeah. any, anything that stands out to you as, is how you develop that or, or how you actually stay with an open mind? I mean, I, I, I have to give credit to my, my parents, um, I guess, you know, I think they raised me in a, in a way that, um, you know, fostered and, and developed that, you know, that curiosity and that they never, you know, they never steered me in one direction or the other. They very much, I mean, they were, they had, they had a lot of discipline. It's not like I, um, could do whatever I want, but I, they never, you know, my father's a doctor, my, my mother's in, in, in public relations. They never were like, you know, you're going to be a doctor or we want you to be do this or that. We want you to be a lawyer. You know, they, they let me, um, kind of find my own path. And so, uh, I think from there, you know, just their kind of flexibility about, about things and, and, um, uh, their their attitudes. I think I, I developed my own sense of of uh, curiosity uh, about about the world and and those are those around us in it. Okay, cool. How do you define success? Um. Yeah, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, certainly, um, you know, professionally, I think, um, you know, if I can, if I feel like the way that I approach my job or my, my writing style is that if I can teach or influence one person, one reader to think about things in a different way, then I've done my job, you know? And I think that's what I kind of tried to do with this book is, um, and hopefully it was more than one reader, but, uh, if I can introduce a reader to something new and have them come away with a different outlook on the world or neuroscience or the, or ourselves, um, then I'm pretty happy. So I, you know, and I, and I feel like I did my job. And so how would I define success? I think I'd like to, um, do more of that. And so I'm sorry, that's kind of a, it, it might be kind of a, a cop out and, and, uh, and, uh, not, not the, not the best answer, but I, I got into this industry in this business, or at least I've found my way in this business, um, pushing myself to do that and to, um, and to, you know, to enlighten or to entertain, um, one, one different reader a day. So that's kind of, 
that's kind of my answer there. Yeah, cool. No, I think it's it's relevant too, and and really, you know, success should be defined individually. So I think that's important. The next question: What one tool, skill, resource, or technique has helped you improve your effectiveness or productivity? Well, I think being someone who works from home, um, it's uh, just being a self-starter and being and being disciplined um, in in my in my job is is uh, has been. Uh, certainly with this book taught me a lot about that and, and making sure that I'm putting in the hours every day to write and, um, and to, or to research. And, um, you know, so I, I don't know if, I don't know what skill necessarily that requires, um, or what tool, um, that sort of mentality requires, but just, uh, just being a self-starter and being disciplined as someone who works from home is, uh, is um has been a key to to my my productivity so what, what how do you stay disciplined like how do you you know stick to what you you need to do yeah it's hard i mean i think it's just about having trying to have routines yeah. and um you know telling myself okay you know i'm gonna get up at a certain time you know the other thing lee and this is kind of silly it sounds silly but getting dressed in the morning is, is, is one that, that actually is, is helpful. Um, you know, my wife goes off to work and there's a, there's a, certainly a tendency or at least a, um, an inclination that I could, I could just easily wear my pajamas all day cause I'm writing from home, you know, what, what's the big deal, but actually, you know, putting on some sort of work, not, I'm not wearing a suit or anything like that, but putting on some semblance of work attire and, you know, treating that idea that when I'm sitting at my desk, I'm there to work, uh, is, uh, is just a mentality, but it's, it's important. And so, um, having that routine, okay, I'm going to get dressed. I'm going to sit down. I'm going to do work from now to then, you know, then I'll take the dog out for a walk. Um, and so on is, is, uh, is, you know, has been my way of doing things. Yeah. I like that. Uh, I can definitely relate. What, uh, if anyone came to you asking, you know, for some advice, uh, they need to make some change in their life. What advice would you give them? Hmm. You know, I think the advice that I, that I like to, to give is, is that there, there are no rules in life. You know, we, we tend to get bogged down and and think about these constraints or these ideals and, um, these ideas that, uh, you know, we have to be a certain thing by a certain amount of time and, and certainly social media and seeing people happy or doing all, you know, traveling the world and all these sorts of things has only added to that pressure. But I think, you know, if you really cut down to it, you can do the, what makes, well, I mean, speaking as an American, what makes, um, our country great is, is, uh, you know, that you can do, uh, anything at, at any time. Um, and, uh, and so, um, you know, I think, kind of reminding yourself that um that there, there's no there's no right time to do anything there's no there's no there's no perfect time to do anything if there are there are no rules uh, about what you should or shouldn't do or can or can't do um and uh and so uh you know either having kind of that that freeing up your mind, I guess, so to speak, to think, okay, you know, yes, maybe I, before I thought that I had to do this by a certain age or had to to be doing this career path, um, you know, having an understanding, uh, you know, that's, that's kind of, uh, contrived and, and placed upon you, um, for external reasons. But, you know, 
it's, it's really there, there's nothing that is constraining you in that in that way. So that's something that I try and always remind myself. There are no rules to this um, this whole life that we're leading, and and um, you know, so it, it tends to make me feel a little bit liberated and and um, puts me at ease. Yeah, I really like that advice. Actually, I think it's quite profound. Um, yeah, really good one. What what meal would you be served? It was your last meal. <laughs> um, this is a, this is the hardest one for me that you've asked, Lee, because I am a I am a completely non picky eater. I just I love food. I love um, all types of food. I, I don't know I don't know if I really even have a favorite food. I think probably you know a good steak, uh, medium rare. Um, with, uh, with some mashed potatoes and broccoli would be, would be fine for me, but I could easily have substituted that for a pizza slice of pizza or a, uh, or some sushi. Uh, it depends on my mood, I guess that day. (laughs) What activity gives you the greatest sense of joy? Um, well, you know, I don't know. I, I love. I, I certainly love. Uh, I love golf. Um, I, I do try and uh, play play some golf, although I haven't had a chance to play yet uh, this this season, which which uh, which is tough for me. Um, but um, yeah, so I'll say golf. I, I, I really I, I enjoy golf a lot. So um, like I said, I, I haven't gotten a chance to just because of my schedule, but I'm looking forward to the time I get to get to play some golf. Yeah, cool. What? What book would you pass down to your children or future generations? One book. Um, I would pass down the. Um, I would make sure the future generations read. Um, I'd make sure they. I mean, this is kind of cliche, but I'd make sure they read *The Great Gatsby* by F. Scott Fitzgerald. I just. I think that is the the perfect perfect book. Um, the writing, the um, you know, the the themes, the. Um, uh, the characters, I just, I, I love that book. I can't get enough of that book. So, um, so I'm sure, I'm sure you've heard that one. I'm sure you've heard that one before and it tends to be cliche, but I think it's cliche for a reason. I think it's a wonderful book. Yeah. I don't know how many uh, interviews I've done exactly, but a few hundred and I think I've heard that once. So really? Okay. Well, I, I guess, I, I guess, uh, I'm glad, I'm glad that I'm bringing you something new then. Yeah. I'll stick that. <laughs> I'm curious. Have you guys? So, um, yeah, check it out yeah. and, and jump on, use the Amazon links there. Um, I'll stick the performance <laughs> cortex in there as well. That helps support the show here. <laughs> what quote, phrase or message would you text or tweet everyone in the world? Um, I, boy, I, you know, I'm gonna have I'll have another cop out here, Lee. But I, I w- I'm gonna say that instead of everyone in the world, I'll just I'll I'll view it from a journalist's standpoint, yeah. and um and say that if I want everybody in the world to to have a you know the viewpoint of a journalist or or what what p- phrase or message that I take with me. Uh, on a day every day, then I, I, I guess it sort of makes sense for for other people as well. But um, I think the uh, the John John McPhee, uh, who's one of my favorite writers, said, "Be stupid, be stupid," <laughs> and uh, it's not it's not inspirational, but I think it's um, it's crucial to to us and to me to when we're approaching a subject to not go into 
into that subject thinking that we know everything about it already or that we've that we're that we're you know that we're experts in something um because especially from from an interviewer standpoint when you're interviewing somebody when you're trying to get information from that from that that person it's important to keep keep an open mind and um and and maintain that that attitude like i don't know everything i need to learn from you i need to i'm here trying to get something from you i am stupid you are smart tell me what you know even though i might you know, I might have all the answers. I still need to learn things from your perspective, how you see things. And so I think kind of that mindset that, you know, shoving down your ego, um, throwing away your preconceived notions and approaching whatever it is that you're doing with this attitude. I want to learn. I want to, I want to take away something new from whoever I'm talking to. I, you know, I think that's just invaluable advice. Yeah. I love it, mate. That's awesome. I've got a few more questions, and the first one is: Do you think we all have a hidden why or a purpose? Um, no, I mean, I, I don't think we have a single hidden why. I think probably we have multiple. Um, you know, some people might have a single one, but um, I feel like you know, I have I have multiple multiple I have multiple purposes. I'm not just, you know, my job. I'm also a family, family man. And, and I've got a dog to take care of and a baby on the way and a wife. And, and, um, you know, so I feel like I have purposes there. I've got, I've got responsibilities and a purpose to, um, to my, uh, to my, to my family, to my parents, um, trying to uphold, you know, the, the legacy that they've, that they've brought to me. And, and so, um, and then obviously, you know, uh, uh, from a career standpoint, um, I do feel like I've, I've chosen a, a, a career that gives me a platform um, and, a, and a purpose in order to, um, you know, to, to bring uh, the world to, to different into people's lives and in different ways and, and so on. And so I, I take that seriously as well. So, um, yes, I think that we all have um, have uh, a per, at least a purpose, um, if not if not many. Yeah. And what does living life with passion and purpose mean to you? Um, you know, I, I think it, it means, um, you know, just making sure that I remember that it's not just all about me, um, and that I have responsibility to other people, um, you know, those close to me and, and those just, you know, all around the world and, uh, that we're all, um, you know, we're all in this community and, and, um, in this world community and that it's not, you know, it's not just, I'm not just, not just thinking about me. I have to think about, um, how I treat others and, and how I treat the world and, and, um, and how, and certainly how I treat my family. So, um, that to me is what is living with, with passion and, and purpose means is reminding myself that it's not just about me. Cool. And what do you believe is the underlying motivation behind everything you do? Just never being satisfied and, um, and never being, uh, and, and never, and never, you know, being insatiable in terms of my own curiosity and wanting to know more about the world. I think, you know, you, you, you're, you, you're, you're talking about the hidden why mine is, 
my my the title of my podcast or, or how I would approach things is is just the why 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 I want to know um, more about uh, <laughs> I want to ask why uh, as much as possible and and um, and try and understand uh, you know what what's going on um, to uh, the mechanics of things and and how things work and and so on and so um, yeah I think that's uh, that's been my motivation um, and continues to be. Yeah, it's it's a really cool one. There's a great book by Andy Andy Enders, I think it's called, and it's it's all about um, you know the simple things. But yeah, one of it is loving that that question why, uh, powerful little question, uh, and it sounds like you and I agree on that one. So, yeah, I. How, how can people best reach out to you? Well, you can you can certainly follow me on Twitter at uh, at z schoenbrunn. So that's at z s c h o n b r u n. Um, and the same thing on uh, Instagram. Um, so I've been uh, tweeting a good amount since the book came out, and happy to uh, add more add more followers. And um, yeah, please reach out to me. I hope to hear from you. I'll check it out. Now I didn't ask you one question that I probably should ask you as a journalist. Um, what a couple of maybe maybe three tips you'd give to someone else that's a writer out there um, that you've learned that helps you in your writing career. Yeah, um, you know. Well, first of all, the, the the big advice: be stupid is my interviewing is my interview uh, advice for you know for anybody. And that is, like I said, don't don't go into any interview thinking that you know all the answers already, but rather going in with with an open mind and and um, and wanting to you know, with that attitude. I want to learn from you is um, is really my, my probably my biggest piece of advice. And the other the other piece of advice is um, is being flexible and. Um, and uh, with with, uh, with the, the things that, that you're going into writing, I think a lot of a lot of young students, uh, young uh, journalists today, especially uh, as we, I kind of mentioned earlier on in the show, Lee, is, is they they see things on Twitter or they see on television. Oh, I want to be like that guy. I want to be the guy on TV talking about the NFL or talking about baseball. And so I'm going to, I'm going to fashion my career in that direction and only write or think about the NFL or, or whatever it is. And, um, that's, that never, that's certainly not what the case for me. I started out covering everything from volleyball to lacrosse to covering a surfing competition on Long Island for, uh, for Newsday to covering, you know, you name it. I, I, I've, I've covered it. And I think um, that having that flexibility is is part and parcel to being a, a real journalist. And so um, uh, I think you know having that uh, attitude, I can yeah. be flexible. I can cover anything. Just tell me. I'm not going to say no to any assignment. You know, that's the attitude you have to have. So yeah. um, that's been uh, that's been good. Yeah. yeah, I think it takes us back to the, you know the, the skill and the habit, and and really putting yourself into different environments as well. That's where you're going to learn that skill from. Um, well, I never thought I'd be writing about neuroscience. That's for sure. So <laughs> here I am. Change, so. Changes your writing skill that that next level too, doesn't it? Uh, and with yeah. being stupid, just just a quick final question: When you approach, you know, an interview, for example, do you go in there, you know, well researched? Do you research the person that you're looking after, or do you actually sort of try not to do that so you can actually be stupid? <laughs> You know, I think it's a great question. I think there's a good balance there. I'll, I'll be honest. Certainly, I don't want to be completely oblivious or ignorant to who I'm interviewing. And so I sort of would want to have kind of a baseline understanding of who the person is and what they're planning to talk about. But 
Um, I, I would never, I would, I wouldn't necessarily structure the questions that I'm going to ask, um, and, uh, and have, you know, a set format of questions that I'm just going to, just going to ask. Um, especially if, again, if I have this approach that I want to learn from them, I want to, uh, take what they're telling me and, and, um, and absorb it. I need to be able to listen first and foremost to what they're saying. And, um, so, you know, if, if I'm not looking at a sheet of paper, thinking about what question I'm going to ask next, um, that's, uh, that's a better way to hear what they're saying, absorb that information, ask follow-up questions. And, and so, um, that's, uh, I think the, uh, the right way to do it. Yeah. Cool, mate. Look, thanks so much for your time, Zach. It's been an absolute pleasure. I'll, um, let you get on with your day and enjoy that Mets game. <laughs> Thank you, Lee. It was great talking to you. Guys, check it all out at thehiddenwhy.com. You can check the show notes there, the links. Uh, make sure you pick up a copy of the book as well. And other than that, guys, until next time, peace, passion, and purpose. See you soon. Thanks, guys, for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed what you heard. I hope you love what you're hearing. If you like this episode, guys, or any of the episodes that you're listening to here at The Hidden Why, please do me a favor by sharing it. You can share it with your families. You can share it with your loved ones. You can do that by using your favorite social media channels using the icons on the platform that you're listening to the Hidden Wire podcast. Also, guys, if you're a fan of the show, please connect with me. Connect with me at thehiddenwire.com. I love to hear from you. I love to converse with the people that listen to this show to find out what they enjoy, what they don't enjoy, and perhaps if they have any questions or feedback for the show as well. You can stay up to date with all that I'm releasing here, guys. I do a solo show every Monday, a three-minute thought every Thursday. I do two interviews a week on a Wednesday and a Saturday, and a book review every Friday. You can stay up to date with all that by subscribing to my newsletter at thehiddenwire.com. Just enter your email address there, and also subscribing to the podcast on the platform that you choose to listen to your podcast. You can also support the show, guys, by using the Amazon links at thehiddenwire.com. So if you like books, you can get all the books that I review there um, and anything else, really, that you like to purchase through Amazon. So use that link. It helps support the show. And we've also got a deal with Audible, guys. Audible is a fantastic way to listen to all your favorite books. We've got a deal with them so you can get two free books when you subscribe or, yeah, subscribe to a 30-day free trial. So check that out, again, at thehiddenwire.com. Guys, that's it from me. You know what to do. Go out there. Breathe more passion into every single moment. Do everything with greater purpose and in doing so you will discover your hidden why this is the hidden why my name is lee manutzi until next time peace passion and purpose see you soon